welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox centering the marginalized and Mormonism. Brother Derek, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. So today, well not today, but when this comes out on Monday, it will be the 31st anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Ah, yes. And this is really significant. I think this should be considered a major civil rights achievement on mm-hmm. on analogy, uh, analogy with what we have for women, for people of color, for LGBTQ folks, like all those other historic landmark uh, pieces of legislation or court victories, this is real. Mm-hmm. Um, the Americans with Disabilities Act was the product of disabled activists who fought for various numbers of provisions, and obviously it's not gonna be perfect, but it is a significant event that I think should be celebrated by all people. Yes, sir. Also today, um, you know, not the, we're recording this on Saturday, but this will come out on Monday. Today, the 24th of July is Pioneer Day. Yay, Pioneer Day. (laughs) And you know, people have complicated feelings about Pioneer Day now. I certainly did when I was younger. Now, I only spent, um, I never got to go on Trek. Like Trek only happened like every four years uh, back where I lived in northeastern Pennsylvania. And by the time I was old enough to do Trek, I was already gone from college or gone to college. And uh, I think uh, the Sisters in Zion created like this beautiful post on it. I think it was about this time last year about their, uh, you know, complicated feelings regarding Trek. I think it's worth uh, reading over that again. But uh, what I wanted to talk about real quick was this uh, these remarks that President Oaks gave. Oh, yeah. Did you, did you I, hear about yeah. those? Yeah, I, I saw and read parts of them. Okay. So I saw the headline and, you know, I immediately tensed because, you know, I just had feelings about it. This was in the mm-hmm. church news. The, the headline is, quote, the pioneer legacy is a legacy of inclusion, close quote. President Oaks declares. Now, I have to interrupt and say, we now we've been so sensitized to any of these things being hoaxes. Like my first uh-huh. theory when I see a headline like that is, well, that could be a hoax. Let me just make sure that it's not a one of Jonathan Streeter's things again. <laughs> yeah, um, that was no fun. That was three years ago. That that is still stings. Um, but anyway. I, I had a strong response uh, to the to that headline, but I can concede that that I do understand what he's trying to communicate. The uh, pioneers embody things that uh, we don't really address in Trek or our conversations at uh, church about them. We we don't talk about how they looked after the poor, or otherwise looked out for the needs of others, or I, I guess more pointedly, we don't we don't talk enough about how we can embody those parts of the pioneers as evidenced by how we treat folks on the margins. Uh, we were once uh, a racialized minority ourselves as Mormons, yet way too many Mormons today are apathetic or or even hostile to uh, messages that affirm uh, the lives of folks on the margins. Just last night, someone commented on an old post of ours, uh, All Lives Matter. There's, there's also the uh, complexity of the, uh, of the harm our pioneers did in their exodus that we haven't really acknowledged. Um, I want to read something that uh, Taylor Petrie wrote for uh, Pioneer Day a couple of years back that uh, succinctly addresses that complexity. This is what he says. All is not well. Today, my people remember that our literal and spiritual ancestors once had to flee their homes and their country to seek refuge for their families. 
They traveled in a large group for safety and support, taking whatever they could carry. Hasty graves marked the wake of the caravan from the many who died along the way, including children. But the families who left felt the dangerous journey was their only way to be safe, free, and prosperous. They did not stop in the first place they could, but went on to the place they felt was best, far away in the West. This is the place, they declared. We too were refugees once. But in our search for asylum, our efficient colonization also displaced the native inhabitants who did not fare as well in their resultant search for refuge. We have not fully grappled with how our story affected the past or the present, or what our story entails for those escaping violence and destitution today. May we do so as we celebrate. Remember, remember, all is not well. Close quote. There's a lot to consider on Pioneer Day, and I hope that as the years pass, we get better at reconciling the images of the early saints and bonnets looking out for their poor with what we've become as a people who may have a distorted image of self-reliance to the point of hating the poor and otherwise being hostile to uh, the marginalized. Um, any thoughts you got about Pioneer Day, bro? No, I have right. lots of thoughts about other stuff. So About to say, we're going to be in uh, Doctrine and Covenants section 84 today, and there is a lot. Um, don't know what we're going to get time to uh, discuss today, but before... We go ahead and jump into it. Just want to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Uh, find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So again, we're in Doctrine and Covenants section 84, a.k.a. Uh, what did Joseph Smith call this? The Revelation on Priesthood? Something like that? Let me see what it says in this chapter. I think so. Yeah, Revelation on Priesthood. Um, this is at a time where, I guess, all the brethren have returned from missions. And, you know, in their moment of, I guess, celebrating their success or just uh, enjoying the opportunity, celebrating the opportunity to be in each other's presence again, uh, they prayed in unity together and basically got this particular revelation. And I'm trying to think if there's any other context to be given on this revelation. I was just so engrossed with the content, I kind of missed. Yeah, let me just add one thing. Yeah. So it has to do with the way the 1835 edition of the Doctrine and Covenants was was structured. So this section, which is now section 84, was printed forth as the fourth section in the 1835 DNC. And what's really interesting is, so the section one is the same in all editions because that is the preamble, pre, preview, pre-preface, whatever it is. It's the introduction to the whole book. But then in the 1835 edition, sections two through seven were taken from random places and in the chronology and put all together up front because they were the foundations of priesthood, church, structure, and so on. And those six sections are section 20, section 107, section 84, section 102, section 86, and section 88. Those all were sections two through seven in 1835. And so we've got some big, really constitutional 
esque. I mean, not not secular, but in terms of structuring our church, section twenty, section one hundred seven, section eighty four, all about priesthood, priesthood responsibilities, quorums, all this other stuff, are so foundational that they were put at the beginning of the Kirtland edition in order to set up that type of uh, beginning to the Doctrine and Covenants. Okay. Cool. So yeah, this section is a big deal. Yeah, and there's a lot going on here. For something that is uh, considered a revelation on the priesthood, there's a, a lot of information. There's uh, stuff on uh, temple ordinances, certainly the offices of the priesthood as well. There's stuff on covenants. There's stuff on the gathering of Israel, missionary work. The law of consecration makes yet another uh, appearance. So again, one more section where we get to talk about the law of consecration and also the uh, the coming the, the second coming of the Savior. So you know, there's a there's a lot going on here to the to the point where it makes you wonder why is this marked as a revelation on the priesthood. And perhaps that's not such an important question to ask, at, at least not for the purposes of what we want to do today. But it was something that I was thinking about during the reading of this section. And, uh, you know, perhaps something worth discussing. But again, I didn't put any real thought into, you know, trying to figure that out, except to say maybe the fact that all of these are ultimately tied to the priesthood and uh, therefore... Everybody has acts like what I thought initially was that this was the Lord's way, perhaps, of saying that since all of these things are tied to the priesthood and all of us have to be able to have access to those things, that this is yet one more way that everybody, you know, male or female or whatever gender you are, you have access to the priesthood and that access to these things uh, that we associate with priesthood is not limited to, uh, you know, men alone. So. That, that's pretty much all the thought I took in wondering why all of these things that are discussed in here were ultimately written under something called a revelation on the priesthood. I don't know if there's anything there you feel worth discussing, but this was just something that, you know, was, I guess, kind of bugging me as I read through this section is why was this called a revelation on the priesthood? Right. I think there is this tricky thing in the church where this priesthood concept has mushroomed and mushroomed and it's become this all pervasive thing that well here's my theory is if everything is the priesthood then nothing is right because it's not marked out as special i don't know if that makes any sense um but i'm thinking in, in comparison to the priesthood in the hebrew bible which was very limited in scope and in and what it did and what it accomplished it was not a saving ordinance. It was not anything that all people or even all men were supposed to do. It was right. limited to the tribe of Levi. Mm -hmm. It wasn't God's power in general, but it was a very specific. Uh, essentially, it's it's more equivalent to being a temple ordinance worker. It's a specific right. calling for a specific time in your life, uh, and it's not something you hold pervasively. And it uh, came with a lot of restrictions as well. So it's not like you get everything plus the priesthood do. The Levites were restricted in where they could live and what professions they could do and uh, who they could marry, right? A lot of extra restrictions. And so when people make the analogy, well, never mind. We'll talk about that another week. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Well, then, let's go ahead and uh, if there's nothing else we want to say about the content uh, or sorry, the uh historical context. Uh, let's go ahead and dive into this content. Uh, where, where are you beginning, Derek? 
how about you go first with what you're going to say in verse 6, and then I'm going to have stuff on 6 through 22. All right, let me go ahead and read verse 6 real quick, because this may not be a huge deal, but it's something that, you know, just stood out to me in terms of uh, the different roles that people take in, uh, I suppose, the spreading of the gospel and the coming forth of Zion, the, the mission of the church, generally speaking. This is just where, like what's happening in this verse at this time is we're starting to get a lineage of the priesthood. It says here that the sons of Moses, according to the holy priesthood, which he received under the hand of his father-in-law, Jethro. Now, the only reason that stood out to me was because I feel like I already knew that Moses got the priesthood from Jethro, but what I don't think I knew the last time I learned this was that uh, Jethro is not actually a uh, descendant of Jacob. He's not a child of Israel, as it were. And uh, that is kind of significant. Uh, Like, one of these reasons is that genealogy does indeed play a huge role in the scripture narrative. It gives uh, the scriptures historical reliability. It uh, highlights the importance of families to God and ancient societies. It helps prove biblical prophecies. But also another reason for these uh, genealogies is to uh, clarify a person's identity and by extension, their privileges, their uh, their roles, and uh, their their responsibilities, and probably more than that. But there are a couple other moments where God seems to be like, that ish don't matter. Jesus Christ came through Ruth's genealogical line. And Ruth was a refugee, a widow, and a woman of color. She also just went against so many conventions, most not- notably choosing to stay with Naomi and also to approach Boaz in his bed. The point is that there, at some rare moments, there are key figures in our sacred text who are not part of the groups traditionally centered in the uh, dominant narrative throughout the text. Jethro was one of them as someone who didn't come through the line of Israel. Um, you know, But he still ended up giving the priesthood to Moses, Samuel the Lamanite, also, as uh, the only Lamanite whose words we have, and that because Jesus had to remind the Nephites to include those. Melchizedek even subscribes to very few conventions that we'd associate with his role as a priesthood holder, older, other than being an old male. Uh, I'm saying all this because there are lots of folks outside of the dominant narratives doing work that's important, even though you likely won't see or hear about them or their contributions because we're not conditioned to look for them or prioritize their stories. Uh, the Book of Mormon, however, indicates that there are such stories and individuals and that one day they will and uh, must be told. There's a great example happening right now as we speak, where uh, filmmaker Molly Bonner took it upon himself to uh, produce the Green Flake movie, whose last viewing party is tonight, by the way. It'll be too late by the time you all hear this, but... You know, it's happening on Pioneer Day, which is just the height of righteous pettiness to me. I love it. But anyway, it's the story of an enslaved pioneer who drove the uh, first wagon into Utah, and he was a key figure in the Mormon exodus to the valley. Yet a lot of people don't even know he exists, and consequently, they don't know to engage all the complexities surrounding an enslaved black Mormon or the plight of black Mormons today and why our relationship with black people as a church is so complicated. You've spoken before, Derek, about the uh, stories of queer folks becoming uh, scripture for future generations because those stories will grant strength to other queer folk and build empathy among others. Those on the margins or otherwise pushed from the uh, uh, the center of the narrative 
there are those in those spaces who will play key roles in building the kingdom of God on earth. And we do well to remember those individuals in our ministering experiences and uh, the telling of our histories, because that is going to put us, the rest of us, in a better position to assist in building the kingdom of God on the earth, in building Zion, as they are attempting to do at this very moment in, uh, in the text here. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's the margins which really inform the center. Mm-hmm. And I could give many examples in addition to Ruth. You've got Melchizedek was not an Israelite. Mm. Um, and David was not of the tribe of Levi. Jesus was not of the tribe of Levi. Mm-hmm. And there's just a lot of people who weren't don't have the, quote, right lineage or right insider status. Right. Um, to to talk about these things mm-hmm. in that way, and of course Jethro was not, as right. you said, not a not just not a Levite, but also not an Israelite at, at all, and he was a priest of Midian. He was a Midianite. Yes. The, okay. Yeah, you're right. Mm-hmm. I was like, he didn't even come through. He didn't even come through Abraham's first wife. Mm-hmm. Jeez, he was way out there. Okay. Yeah. So, um, we're, well, now I have a big, long digression. Are we ready for this? Well, I mean, that's what a lot of Section 84 is. It is a big, long digression. Like, I feel like the Lord takes a big, long digression before we actually get to the conversation on the priesthood. So go off, Derek. Okay. Let's digress. So, first of all, let me do a time check. How far are we along? Oh, we're only 20 minutes in. Okay. Hopefully I can do this in like 20 to 25 minutes. <laughs> Let's go. Okay. So, in verses 6 through 22 of section 84, we have a very long digression on priesthood lineage and priesthood power and roles and stuff like that. I need to say a disclaimer. First of all is... For me, it's the there's a priority of the Bible. That is my heritage. That's my academic interest. And so for me, the Bible takes precedence over the other scriptures in terms of what I what I honestly connect with best. And I okay. think that's fi- that's fair. I mean, if Absolutely. people want to connect best with the Book of Mormon, I'm not judging them. I think the body of Christ is meant to be diverse. We're one body with many members, and some people are going to connect here and there in different ways, and we're stronger with all of us than with any one approach by itself. Right. So I don't want Absolutely. anyone to judge me for my uh, prioritization of the Bible. And right. But that's going to color the way I look at section 84. Like if Mm -hmm. there's something that's in the Bible versus in section 84, I'm going to be, the Bible's my foundation, and then I'm going to wrestle with what's going on in section 84. All right. What do you mean by that? What we got to wrestle with? In the Bible, there's no indication that Moses got any priesthood, anything from his father-in-law Jethro. Mm -hmm. That is something post-biblical that we see in the DNC, but it has no source in the scriptures. And so I'm like, what do we do with that? And uh, that's just one example of of what what's going on here. And let me just give you another example. So if you look at this lineage right here from verses 6 through 13, you go through um, Moses uh, allegedly received the priesthood from Jethro, who allegedly received it from Caleb, Elihu, Jeremy, Gad, and then Isaiah. What's really interesting about this is all of these names are biblical names, 
you can see them in the King James Version of the Bible, but there's mm -hmm. no lineage like this anywhere in the Bible, right? Mm -hmm. And some of these names, like Jeremy, is the New Testament spelling of Jeremiah, mm -hmm. who didn't live at that time, and Isaiah is the New Testament spelling of Isaiah. Mm -hmm. So we've just got these names put into this list, and this list comes out of nowhere, and what do we do with that? Because that's not how the biblical narrative which is really sort of self-contained and 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 it it makes sense in and of itself if that makes sense. Uh, and then what do we do with this? Where now you have this lineage that is traced through Abraham and then Melchizedek all the way back to Enoch, uh, through Noah and then to Abel and then to Adam, and that really runs into one of the biggest challenges that we have in the modern post-enlightenment world is what do we do with things like Adam and Eve or Noah's flood or the Tower of Babel. We've got a lot of mythic elements in Genesis 1 through 11 mm -hmm. and elsewhere in the scriptures too, but... That antediluvian mess though. Yes. A like lot. <laughs> a lot of people, their instinct is going to be to take these literally and woodenly and say you have to believe them and take a very option one thinking to them. Mm-hmm. But for me, I'm captivated by the power of story. And we've got a lot of non-literal modes of presentation in the scriptures. We've got myth, parable, and hyperbole, none of which makes sense to me to take things literally. For example, Jesus told stories all the time that didn't actually happen. Mm -hmm. You know, it's called a parable. Yeah, that's the parable. And the point is to interpret the parable according to its genre. And that's a key word here. We have to look at the genre of uh -huh. the text to figure out how we're going to wrestle with it and make sense of it. Uh -huh. And for me, in my, from my perspective, when I look through these verses 6 through 22 and 84, I identify it as myth. Okay. I don't think that we should take it as literal evidence that Adam existed or that Noah's flood existed or that Abraham did all the things that is says he did or even Moses in the Exodus. So all of these things uh we've got some historicized myths in in the Hebrew Bible which also sneak into the doctrine and covenants. And that gets back to another point about our brains are wired differently. Like all of us we're going to have, like, some people are going to be able to take things literally, and other people are like, no, I just can't believe that that's literal based on what I know and how my brain works mm -hmm. uh, as a product of the Enlightenment, as a product of the scientific uh, worldview. Like, I cannot make Noah's flood actually happen. I can't make the Earth be 7,000 years old. I mm -hmm. can't make Adam and Eve be historical individuals, especially when you read it in Hebrew, you realize, oh, Adam really just means humanity. It is mm -hmm. representing all of us. It is symbolic. But anyway, so we need to have a conversation about myth and how to approach that. And to do that, I'm going to introduce this scholar called Rudolf Bultmann, who was a German New Testament scholar, very, very influential. Uh, he was part of the confessing. He was part of the confessing church that resisted the Nazis. And also, he was a product of his time, because if you look at the philosophical and political influences that were floating in his world, he definitely was floating and responding to all of those. So let me tell you some things that I've learned from Rudolf Bultmann. The first thing is an issue of 
worldviews, that we did not choose our own worldview. Like if you grow up in a a scientific worldview where there miracles aren't happening now and you have to believe based on evidence and all these other things that are a product of the Enlightenment, skepticism, rationalism, all of those things, you realize we live in a very different worldview than that of the New Testament, and that was Boltmann's area of expertise, but it's applicable to all the scriptures as well. Because we don't choose our worldview, and because we're in a different worldview than that of the Bible authors and community that received the biblical text, we've got some legwork to do. And it involves identifying mythic elements in the scriptures, and then what we have to do is demythologize them, is what Bultmann says. And I'll get to what that is later. Okay. And you might be wondering, well, why do we have to demythologize them? The people in the first century, like, did did they have to demythologize them? And no, because if they grew up in a mythological worldview, they could engage with the text on its own terms, right? Like I said, we don't choose our worldview. We don't choose how our brains are wired, which, by the way, asterisk, there should be a conversation around uh, um, a disability and neurodivergence at that point. But let's get back to the worldview. And what what Bultmann was swimming in was existentialism. And let's talk a little bit about existentialism. It's a philosophical tradition, roughly going back to, why are you smiling at me? I mean, I'm just counting the tangents right now. Well, fine, but it's all relevant. I'm sure it's all relevant. Yes. I'm just keeping track, it's mental not... track of where we're going and where we've gone. Okay. And how many ladders were taken off the little trail before we get back. Okay. So let's talk about existentialism real yeah, quick. Yeah, go ahead. Existentialism, uh, for Bultmann, it was Martin Heidegger was the most recent influence, but it's something that sort of goes back all the way to Kierkegaard. And it's this idea of uh, the liberals in the 19th century really wanted to just look at the scriptures scientifically, objectively, and historically. Like, oh, these things didn't happen. This is all we can show. This is what it was. Jesus was a great moral teacher, but all this other stuff we can't really uh, prove happened. And so instead of focusing on the objectivity, the existentialists came in with this idea of subjectivity. And one of the first things is, is that Meaning, purpose, and significance aren't delivered to you from outside. It's every person is free to figure out. It's choose your own adventure. It is, um, it's up to you to figure out and to make meaning out of this life and to live it authentically and to be called into an authenticity that is driven by intentionality, meaning, and purpose rather than just going along with the flow um, and living inauthentically. And then get another thing that Boltmann talked about was pre-understanding. So we all come to the scriptures with pre-understandings. Some people will come to it as historians. Some people will come to it as skeptics. Some people will come to it as literary critics. And they're all going to be asking different questions of the text and getting different things out of it. And as from an existentialist standpoint, it's what you get out of it is what you get out of it, right? It's up to you to figure out what you want from the text. And this gets back into this demythologization that Boltmann was talking about. He, we have to sort of 
take the central proclamation of the scripture and decouple it from the mythological frame in which it was conveyed in order to get to what it's actually talking about. And this shouldn't be controversial, because what if we talked about deparabolization, right? You have to actually do some work to figure out what the parable's talking about. It's the same thing with mythic literature within the scriptures. The last thing I need to talk about in this section of what I'm talking about is this concept of kerygma. Uh, so kerygma is how I would pronounce it, is the Greek word for proclamation or announcement. It is the core proclamation of the early church about the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is what people, uh, this was the missionary proclamation. And so this kerygma for Bultmann ends up being an existential call to authentic living. That is, you are grasped by something meaningful and purposeful outside of yourself that uh, that allows you to live a life with authentic purpose. And so let's go back to what we're doing here is, all I'm saying is that when we look at the genre of this part of section 84, we see a lot of things that I, I identify as mythic content. Joseph looks to be remixing the story that's in the Bible, which is fair. I mean, prophet, the New Testament authors they remixed all remixing, the time. Yes. They complete, the, the, the New Testament authors take stuff literally out of context all the time, but it's part of the game, right? Right. And within that game, it's totally valid because they are creatively going option three and retelling the story. Absolutely, every prophet of the Lord has the right, and every person as well, has the right to retell the story in light of various crashes. Now mm -hmm. let's talk about something really, really interesting. Okay. Uh, what is the purpose of this historicized myth in section 84? It's to tell creatively the story that this is the restoring the ancient order of all things. Because if you can make it go back to uh, Abraham and then make it go back to Enoch, make it go back to Noah, make it go back to Abraham, you're like restoring the ancient order of things. But I don't think that literally has to be true, and I don't think Adam literally has to be a historic individual because we can decouple the concept from the myth in which it is imparted to us, right? I don't think that we need to take the... And this is something else I learned from Bultmann. We don't need to... Uh, to take the significance and truths of the scriptures and tie it down to the particular form uh, in which we receive it. Okay. And let me go back to something. Uh, Real with, quick, just to make ooh, sure I understand yeah. what, what's happening here. Yeah. You're saying that Joseph Smith in this section may be engaging in what these other prophets in the New Testament did of retelling a particular part of the story? Well, that's how I take it. Now, okay. I'm, I, I'm obviously, people can disagree with me. I right, might right. be wrong. I just wanted to make sure I'm, that's what you were but saying. But what it looks like is that Jesus, that Joseph here is telling a story uh, about the lineage of this priesthood, uh -huh. and there's no evidence of this lineage, and there's no evidence of a Melchizedek priesthood anywhere in the Hebrew Bible, mm -hmm. right? And so I'm saying, oh, this is just his way of grafting on in sort of like we talked about Pannenberg and the retroactive continuity, oh, like gosh. grafting 
bad conversation, bro. Well, you're gonna be going to Union, so I am. I'm, I re- <laughs> we're gonna, we're gonna. It's gonna be. Oh, well, just think if I torture you here now, then Union is gonna be so much better. Right? I know. I'm about to say, like, right. <laughs> this is what I think is gonna happen when I finally get to school. It's gonna be normal people. <laughs> I already know it's these people be normal are normal. People. Most I've, of them are gonna be normal. Like I'm already talking to a lot of the folks, and you know, I already know they are not normal in the same ways that we are not normal. You know, so yeah. I'm looking forward to that. But even still, you know, I'm just like, if I if I can have these conversations with Derek, I have this fantasy about showing up and just being like, oh, school's easy. Yeah. I've been dealing with Derek for the last two and a half years. <laughs> this is just fine. Yeah, that's my well, hope. Well. Yeah. So, but yeah, you're definitely right. It's like don't I don't know exactly what what Joseph's sources are here. I think uh-huh. he's he's definitely um, creatively retelling the story in the Hebrew Bible in a way that will be impactful for uh-huh. his audience. I think uh-huh. that is really um, this inspired process. That's what it looks like to me. But let's okay. go back again to the way my brain is wired. That I look at this text. I look at the what, what the Bible says, and that's the way my brain is wired. Right. Right. And. Um, not everyone's brain is going to be wired that way, so I can't make anyone agree with me. Entitled to their own opinions, exactly. they're entitled to disagree. But let's talk about when, and let's do a parallel to what okay. Joseph is doing. Is very similar to what the author of the Hebrew of the Epistle to the Hebrews is doing with Melchizedek and Jesus. So let's talk about this. We have a big boo boo that the author of the Hebrews is running up against. People are saying, "Well, how can you?" Uh, you know, do something outside the Levitical priesthood, right? How do you have any authority outside the Levitical priesthood? Because you know what? Your Jesus, your Messiah, was not of the tribe of Levi. He was not a priest. He was not in this lineage. He wasn't a priest at all, actually, uh, in in terms of those con- uh, categories, right? The categories that, that Second Temple Judaism had, Jesus was literally not a priest. He was not a priest. Right. So what happened is the author of the Hebrews... Uh, came up with this loophole, this huge creative option three style loophole by saying, you know what? Okay, fine. Jesus was not of the tribe of Levi. He was a tri- of the tribe of Judah. But I can jump over that. And what I can do is make up this concept of a Melchizedek priesthood. And then once I create this out of thin air, Melchizedek priesthood, which never existed in the Hebrew Bible, if I make this up out of thin air, then I can say that Jesus was part of that order, and then I can say that this was superior to the order uh, of the sons of Levi. Now, how does mm-hmm. that actually work? So, what what Jesus, what um, what the author of Hebrews is doing is going back to the Genesis narrative where Melchizedek was not. Well, he lived before Levi anyway, but he was not an Israelite. He was an outsider. He was a Gentile. He was a, um, he also, according to the Hebrews, was without lineage, without um, ancestors, without descendants. Right. That's what it says. And which is really good for people who have different flavors of biological families or chosen families, right? Correct. So look at that. Like, Levi was a child of Abraham, right? Or descendant of Abraham. Mm-hmm. And therefore was in Abraham's loins when Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek, proving, according to this creative like logic, that Melchizedek was greater than Levi. 
and all of the Levitic, all the Levites. So now, how do we get? How do we tap Jesus into that? Well, we look at the messianic promise in Psalm one hundred and ten, where it says, "To the Davidic king, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek." And you know what, David, who who this was referring to, was not of the tribe of Levi. He was obviously of the tribe of Judah. And so, what happened is, if we take the Davidic king who had a priestly function, you actually see him offering sacrifices, which is really one of the the only things that priests really needed to do was offer sacrifices and assist with the temple worship. That wasn't a universal thing that all men or all people needed to do. Just some people needed to have the training to, to offer the sacrifices. And that's basically what the priesthood was about. And there were some other ceremonial things too. But let's go back to what David did. David did some of those ceremonial things. He um, was part of the Ark procession. He led some temple worship, and he also offered sacrifices. So he kind of snuck in there even though he wasn't a priest. But this order of Melchizedek didn't actually exist. Like It was a, a symbolic statement made of David in Psalm 110 and then gets applied to Jesus by the author of the Hebrews. So this through this long, really cool story and uh, what an outsider would think is strained logic, the author of the, he- of the letter to the Hebrews made up this Melchizedek priesthood, said Jesus was a part of it, and that is why Jesus is superior to the Levitical priesthood. And the only reason he had to do this is because Jesus wasn't of the tribe of Levi, and the author of Hebrews had to get out of this big gotcha. What do you think of this? Uh, it never occurred to me to read Hebrews as an option three kind of thing, especially since we didn't really talk about this when we went over our New Testament studies. Um, didn't occur to me to uh, read Hebrews in that way. But also it's just kind of, I, I, I guess, reassuring that even the writers of the New Testament who we revere and we put on pedestals, they had to engage in the same things that we have to engage in today to make sense of uh, these changes in our understandings of history, in our changings of understandings of what it means mm-hmm, to, mm-hmm. you know, keep the first and second great commandment. There's just a lot of things that we brush up against in our critical engagement of policy and theology that make us have to retell certain stories in history to make sense of them. So that's a lot to chew on, Brother Derek, if I'm being honest. Well, if you look at it, historically, Jesus was on the margins. He literally was not a priest. He literally was not a king. Yet we revere him as a priest, as a high priest, as a king, as a prophet, as uh-huh. a savior, as a messiah. Uh, and he didn't, he wasn't literally a messiah in terms of what the expectations of Second Correct. Temple Judaism would have been anyway. So Correct. he didn't actually, doesn't fit these categories, kind of like queer people. We don't fit the categories. Mm-hmm. So we expand the categories, we fudge them, and we uh, massage them, and we blur some of these boundaries and find a way of claiming authenticity, Right. That's exactly what the author of the Hebrews is doing, is claiming authenticity for Jesus, where mm-hmm. according to the pre-existing standards, there wouldn't have been authenticity. Mm-hmm. I think queer people have to do the same thing in the church, anyone in the margins, right? Because people say, well, you're not the prophet, you're not an apostle, you don't have the authority to do this, you don't have that, you don't have X, Y, Z, you don't have all this. I'm like, yeah, well, we're going to do, we're gonna have to do a creative loop around, right? Mm-hmm. And find a loophole just like the author of Hebrews did, mm-hmm. and say, well, I've got something that's superior. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I don't have this calling, I don't have this authority, I don't have this 
this priesthood office. I don't have any of this. But you know what? Jesus didn't have any of that either. Hmm. If you look at the categories that existed at the time. Mm-hmm. And so that's where we can find empowerment here in uh and I think it's it's amazing that that Joseph made a big deal about Melchizedek essentially uh glorifying forever this this loophole right and naming an entire priesthood after this thing that was a loophole mm-hmm. which should always remind us to be driven to the margins and driven to the outsiders and driven to Melchizedek who had no lineage and didn't get his priesthood from anywhere and didn't pass it on to anyone and uh, who was without lineage as, as the author of Hebrews really points out on purpose. Yeah. So let's talk about this, some of the significance of this priesthood. Uh, oh, I'm not done yet. <laughs> I mean, I didn't expect you to be, you know. So, le- so, so let's talk about status for just a second, because people in our church tend to worship status more than they worship Jesus. Like, they talk okay. about what calling you have and who's speaking in conference and all these other things and who's got the keys and all of these, all of these things. And so in order to talk about status, I'm going to bring in this uh, verse from Deuteronomy 23, verse 2, and this is the King James Version. It says, A bastard shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. Even to his tenth generation shall he not enter into the congregation of the Lord. Now, this is a really bad uh, status, right? And the word here in Hebrew, it gets translated as bastard, but the word is mamzer in Hebrew, which doesn't mean an illegitimate child. It means the offspring of particularly prohib- uh, prohibited relationships like mm. incest and adultery. Mm-hmm. And the difference is, a um, in our culture, the product of two unmarried people would be illegitimate. Mm-hmm. But in uh, the Hebrew Bible, the offspring of an unmarried woman and an unmarried man is not a mom's heir, not a bastard, but mm-hmm. it's just incest incest and adultery the products of those will be mamzerim okay uh i love this statement in the mishnah it is very very interesting about what it says about the mamzer as you can imagine there's some significant deficits for the mamzer in the israelite society because not even their children in 10 generations can enter into the congregation of the lord and so the Mishnah in Horayot 3.8 says this, Mamzer Talmid Chacham Kudem Lekohen Gadol Am Haaretz. And what that means is, a Mamzer who is a Talmud scholar takes precedence over a high priest who is ignorant. Let me say what? that again. A Mamzer who is a Talmud Chacham, a scholar of the Talmud, a, 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 a learner, a disciple of the Torah, takes precedence over the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, uh, Am Haaretz, uh, literally, that's a, of the people of the land, these common peoples who just don't know anything, right? So what this is telling us mm-hmm. is that lineage and status doesn't get you anywhere if you don't have the learning, if you don't have, at least for Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, if you don't have love, if you don't have this understanding, yeah, you don't get to, to claim your, your priesthood office. Obviously, so this is very interesting because the high priest, there was only one in the Hebrew Bible at a time, was the highest status, literally the highest you could get in terms of your uh, priesthood ladder climbing, whatever. Mm-hmm. 
Um, by the way, being a prophet in the Hebrew Bible was not a priesthood office. It was just you. God called you to go say something to people that made them want to kill you. That made you a prophet. But Even it, now, it's not an office. Right. Exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, what I'm saying with this is, is this is a long way around of saying if we look at these texts and we demythologize them where there's mythic content and figure out, well, what's going on here? Well, what's going on here for me, um, going back to this existential option, right? I see a celebration of outsiders. I see a celebration of uh, trumping the the status quo with, with loopholes. I see... Uh, an amazing inbreaking of of God's reign, and that gets back to what this kerygma was all about for Boltmann. It was the the content of the gospel, really, that when we demythologize, we're able to allow the proclamation to be in full bloom, and this proclamation existentially reaches us and grasps us and calls us to a life of authentic faith, where this faith no longer has to be tied to a specific historicization of the myth, right? We don't have to take them literally, but subjectively, we are, we're called to live into this. So that's basically all I had to say, and wow, I did that within the time that I thought I would. Impressive. <laughs> I thought it was going to go longer. I really did. Yeah. Well, I could talk more. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you could, Derek. Um, it's a lot to think about. Brother. Yeah, a lot, a lot to think to about. And I had to like go quickly, so I really didn't do justice to all I'm about of. About to say, you, you definitely. I was uh, marking and mapping the tangents, quote unquote, that you know we uh, the little journeys we went through throughout that, uh, you know, throughout your words. And I was like, okay, took a little detour here, detour there. Mm-hmm. Um, we had to take a quick detour here because it looks like Derek actually is trying to mind this self-imposed uh time limit that he's given himself yeah um, not that i don't appreciate i didn't that, even but leave any time for jokes you didn't like that's yeah. how that's how <laughs> that's how much of an effort you were making to condense this whole thing um like what i what i liked about this though is just how in order to give jesus his proper space mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the writer of hebrews had to retell his story yeah, and um, I like to believe that's uh, that's something that all of us can do to an extent. That in order to give Jesus a prophet on the margins who didn't mm-hmm. have any of the conventional uh, uh, credentials, that we might extol mm-hmm. him above, you know, the priests of Levi, we had to, in essence, retell his story mm-hmm. to give him his proper place. And uh, you've alluded to this, but I want to say more directly to make sure I understand. This is something that people in marginalized communities that we also have to do, that in order to give us our proper space, we have to rewrite the narratives that are traditionally told about us or the ones at least that are right. traditionally used mm-hmm. and weaponized to deny us the fullness of our humanity. Because ultimately, if we want to uh, really uh I suppose, respect the Imago Dei in all people, Mm -hmm. something has to be done with how we interpret or the, or, you know, read things like the law of chastity or the family proclamation Mm -hmm. or the old Mm -hmm. Testament Mm -hmm. or, and, you know, a couple passages in the new Testament, all of it has to be reimagined and uh, re 
interpreted through these new lenses so that they can be retold in the way that, for lack of a better phrase, they are supposed to be told. Am I understanding that correctly? Right. In fact, I didn't mention this, but Bultmann called his approach the new hermeneutic. The, ner- the new hermeneutic. Yes. I googled Bultmann during the, during the conversation, and I saw immediately the uh, demythologization and uh, also saw this, uh, this new hermeneutic under his Wikipedia page. So <laughs> I- I'm learning yeah. some things. Maybe one day I'll have a Wikipedia page. <laughs> Maybe one day, Derek. Maybe one day. It's like, it's going to be up to you, Derek. Yeah, I can honestly yeah. say that. Yeah, up I to you. Hard, do the hard work. But speaking of hard work, there may be things that in the, uh, in. so I'm not in the same worldview as the 1830s, right? Let's just name that. Uh-huh. We haven't had Darwin yet uh, in a, in the 1830s, which means... Joseph probably believed Adam and Eve were historical people. He probably believed in a young earth creation. Uh, you know, he probably believed in a literal historical flood that was global. He probably believed in the Tower of Babel being a literal explanation of the origin of languages. But now we there know there was that- more evidence of this in the last Come Follow Me lesson uh, when he did the little Q and A for Revelation. Yeah, right. Demonstrated About the seven thousand years. Yeah, thing. yeah, yeah. And like DNC 1 verse 24 says, it's given to people in the language of their time. Yeah. And so what I have to realize is I, my brain doesn't work the same way as someone in the 1830s. So I'm going to have to do it a little bit differently. And no one's going to judge me for that. My expectation out there mm-hmm. is that no one's going to judge me for that. I am doing the best I can on judgment day. I'm going to, I'm going to look forward to standing in front of the Lord and say, I was faithful with the knowledge and the training that I had gotten. Mm-hmm. I am committed to being faithful, mm. right? And so it's going to look different than some people think is faithful, but I have no, uh, my conscience is clear. I'm going to go before the Lord and said, I did everything I could to be faithful with the skills and talent and knowledge and training and education that I've gotten in order to build up uh, the reign of God here on earth. Ooh, let me just add another thing. We talk a lot about priesthood, but in the Bible, remember, like I said, the Bible is my primary lens for looking at stuff. Yes, sir. In the, in the New Testament, how many times did Jesus say the word priesthood? He never said it. He never said it. And how many times did he say the word church? Once, maybe twice. Three, three times. times. Yeah. yeah, three times. Once okay. in Matthew 16 and twice in Matthew 18. Oh, yep, yep, yep. In the, the you know, it's the telch of the church. And if Correct. the church doesn't, uh, if they don't believe the church, then then they um, treat them as a sinner and tax collector, a gen, you know, Gentile and tax collector. And then the other one is the Matthew 16, on this rock I will build my church. Right. So this is the three times in the entire New Testament where Jesus uses the, the Greek word ekklesia, church. And he never talks about priesthood. I'm thinking if we take that primary song seriously, I, I'm trying to be like Jesus. Is that how it goes? I'm trying to be like yeah. Jesus? Let's be like Jesus when we talk about the church. I think... Latter-day Saints are addicted to the word church. I hear church, church, church all the time. I'm like, yeah. But Jesus talked about loving your neighbor. He talked about loving God. He talked about building up God's kingdom. He rarely talked about institutions. And the times where he, he did he, talk about institutions. It was to the end. It was, it of, was, that, uh, of loving your neighbor and all that, yeah. other, all that other stuff. 
It was a vehicle. It was a vehicle. And then when that vehicle didn't work, he criticized institutions. Mm -hmm. But I Mm -hmm. think Latter-day Saints culturally, and this isn't even in our, our doctrine is way better than this. Mm -hmm. But culturally, Latter-day Saints want to make everything about the church. Like, is this church approved? Like, the priesthood is the church. The leaders Mm -hmm. are the church. The scriptures are the church. All this other stuff is church, church, church. Mm -hmm. And if I want to be like Jesus, I'm going to have to use the word church a lot less. Mm-hmm. I should maybe try that. And same with priesthood, <laughs> right? I think there's an important part, but priesthood itself doesn't make up a big chunk of what's going on in the New Testament. We've got mm-hmm. a little bit in Peter yeah. and a little bit in Hebrews, but yeah. we don't have this priesthood concept uh, formed the way it is here in our Restoration Scriptures. So yeah. I should probably stop talking about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And I know you wanted to say something about verses, was it in the 55 through 57? Yeah, I wanted to uh, talk about this condemnation in verses uh, 54 through 57 because I feel like it still stands today. And it's also one of the... uh, one of the passages that validates this idea of uh, communal responsibility, Uh, this idea that as a church we have sinned. Uh, you see this as you interrogate whiteness a bunch, but there's like, there's this notion, this myth of uh, individualism that says you don't own any responsibility for the sins of your community, only responsibility for yourself. But uh, that idea is discarded pretty handily through through this whole thing, and it also specifies the sin of the community, the sin of the saints. I didn't quite catch the context of the condemnation, but both Ezra Taft Benson and Thomas S. Monson repeated this condemnation and extolled uh, solutions. Uh, Here's the sin, the communal sin, starting in verse 54. And your minds in times past have been darkened because of unbelief and because you have treated lightly the things you have received, which vanity and unbelief have brought the whole church under condemnation. And this condemnation resteth upon the children of Zion, even all. And they shall remain under this condemnation until they repent and remember the new covenant, even the Book of Mormon, and the former commandments which I have given them, not only to say, but to do according to that which I have written. Now, how have and how do we treat uh, the new covenant, the Book of Mormon, lightly? To borrow a Derek phrase, I do have a theory. It comes to mind as I uh, think of a phrase that you regularly say on the show and a conversation that we had with Blair Osler. You often say in an exasperated tone, it's in the scriptures. That's (laughs) that's like what you say. And uh, during our conversation with Blair, I remember when she said something along the lines of, I'm not turning the scriptures upside down and inside out. They literally say what I'm writing, and we're not conditioned to hear those things for whatever reason. Several times during uh, the course of our podcast, we come across plain and precious truths in the scriptures, yet devoid of the context of the scriptures, those truths sound radical to many in our church. Just in the last several weeks, our uh, discussions of equity and economic justice that per- that pervade discussions around the law of consecration, they're not particularly radical in the context of the scriptures, but they might seem radical to others in the church because those are the parts that we take lightly, the parts that we don't particularly like, or the parts that go against uh, some other narratives that we have running through our bodies. Like how many people do you know 
that follow the counsel of King Benjamin in Mosiah 4, where he tells us how to treat beggars and those without addresses. Do we take seriously the words of King Benjamin when it comes to economic injustice, or the words of Captain Moroni as it pertains to black Americans, or the words of Alma at the Waters of Mormon when he lays out the baptismal covenant to mourn with those that mourn and comfort those that stand in need of comfort and stand as a witness at all times and in all things and in all places? I've watched way too many of my LDS siblings not take those things seriously in the face of some of our most urgent and important issues. So when I read this, I, I'm i thinking to myself, yeah, we're still under condemnation because we either still don't know what these words mean or we don't take them as seriously as we ought to. As much emphasis as previous prophets have put on the Book of Mormon, I still don't know that we as a church quite get it or that we're quite taking it seriously enough. Uh, Ezra Taft Benson said, referencing this section, this part of the text, unless we read the Book of Mormon, this is what this is him now, unless we read the Book of Mormon and give heed to its teachings, the Lord has stated in section 84 of the Doctrine and Covenants that the whole church is under condemnation, and this condemnation resteth on the children of Zion even all. The Lord continues, they shall remain under this condemnation until they repent and remember the Book of Mormon and the former commandments which I have given them, not only to say, but according to that which I have written, but to do according to that which I have written. The Book of Mormon has not seen, has not been rather, nor is it the center of our personal study, family teaching, preaching, and missionary work. Of this we must repent. Close quote. I think our repentance looks very much like a more earnest and protracted reading of the scriptures in ways that address society's most pressing issues, including racism, queerphobia, misogyny, xenophobia, ableism, etc. In fact, I know we're not taking the scriptures as seriously as we ought to because the scriptures truly do give us the formula and transcendent narrative we can use to combat these things, and somehow we're still late to the party if we show up at all on all of these issues as a church. We are still under condemnation, and like Ezra Taft Benson said, we must repent and really make the Book of Mormon the center of our worship, our teaching, our study, and our missionary work, etc. But yeah, what do you think? Yeah, I think it's we're we're up against a lot of cultural mess here uh-huh. because there's this cultural thing of like reading the scriptures, but it's not reading the scriptures in a way that's well. I shouldn't really condemn a whole group of people with a generalization, but what I see is that people admit themselves that they read the scriptures and don't get anything out of it. Right? They're doing yeah. it because it's obligated like they read mm-hmm. a few verses they read a chapter a day or they read whatever they do to check to check off the checklist and say okay i read my scriptures <laughs> and i get merit for reading the scriptures independent of what the content and message was that is literally what president monson said in his quote that i admitted that people read the scriptures too much as a checklist item and not enough with real intent and there's this uh i think there's this perverse um inverse proportion between how important something is and uh, or at least culturally how important something is and then how difficult it actually is you would think that the 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 important stuff should get the emphasis but let's look i really think that the weight that something gets in our culture is proportional to how easy it is to say you've done it 
to check it off, right? Uh-huh. I can be very clear whether or not I've had any coffee this week. Mm-hmm. But can I actually be sure, like, how much did I envy someone else, right? How much did I um, omit to love someone, and and stretch you know that's hard to check off like i can definitely check off tithing you can check off um the the word of wisdom you can check off some of these other things really easily yeah. like did you um wear your garments did you you know work on sunday did you all these other things that you can very clearly check off but it's uh, i think it makes jesus cry when members of the church are more worried about coffee that goes into their mouth than racism that comes out of their mouth. That's a bar. Right? People will will swear up and down their entire life and make a big deal about whether or not they drink coffee. But what about the racism? What about the misogyny? What about the ableism? Like, mm-hmm. that runs rampant. And Jesus cares way more about that than coffee wasn't even prohibited in any other dispensation. It's just this minor thing that um, not even alcohol was prohibited in other dispensations. Like people are making a big deal about these things, and the reason is, I think they have anxiety about. They want to make sure that they've checked things off, so they focus on the things that are easy to check off. Mm. And that makes Jesus cry. Mm. It makes me almost cry. Yeah, it's unfortunate because you know those very things those have those have profound impacts on uh, on our lives, and. Um, and I think while we're talking about priesthood, we should just pause and and mention DNC section 121 because this gets back to the heart of what I think is the purpose of the priesthood, right? We shouldn't talk about priesthood as dominating over someone or having the keys and authority to make someone else do what you want. Uh-huh. And that's what most people, look, when they see the talk about it, power and authority and priesthood in section 85 that's where they go is like who gets to make the rules and who gets to whatever but here's what it says is um 121 verse 41 it says no power or influence can or ought to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood only by persuasion by long suffering by gentleness and meekness and love unfeigned by kindness and pure knowledge which shall greatly enlarge the soul without hypocrisy and without guile. I think some of the most important things in that list are love, love unfeigned actually, not just this like, oh, I love the gays, but actual love. (laughs) And then knowledge. A lot of people in the church want to operate without pure knowledge. Mm -hmm. You'll get a whole bunch of stuff wrong unless you factor into, you can't love correctly without a knowledge of the population that you're claiming to love. Mm -hmm. And this gets back to what we're saying about priesthood is... A lot of people say that priesthood is the power of God or the ability to use God's power to bless people. And I think that that's a big piece of it. But when we look at priesthood in the Bible, it's about ushering people into the presence of God, and especially in a ritual way. And I think that is something Jesus did throughout his life. And I think when we actually use the priesthood correctly— we do usher people into the presence of God. Mm. That's the point. All right. Anyway, I don't think I have anything else to say, and we're at the hour 18 yeah. mark, so. That means I'm, I got to be done. Yes, sir. Got to be done. And I'm sure you got more to say, but. 
is what it is. Anyway. Yeah, I could have talked about Ruth a whole bunch. You know what we should do? Hmm. Is like a series on heroes in the Bible. Like we could go through Melchizedek. We could go through Jethro, Ruth, all these other people, Rahab, um, who was on the margins as a sex worker uh, and as a non-Israelite. There's just a whole Whose bunch. line did she come through, by the way? Or who came through her line? Uh, she was the father of Boaz, according to Matthew 1. There it is. I think we discussed her briefly when we did our uh, class on Ruth for... Uh, who was it? Mormons building bridges. That was like a year or two ago. Yeah, I don't remember. I don't expect you to. I, I don't know how many times you've talked about this, Derek. So, doesn't surprise me that you don't yeah, remember. But more like, Ruth. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, it's a great idea. Some more classes you can work on, Derek. Nah. <laughs> I better stop having great ideas. You're gonna make me. I'm just do saying, more work. This is this is Derek's thing. He's got tons of great ideas. And we just got to work on this execution. Got to get these resources for this execution because Derek belongs on TED Talk stages, not talking to me every Saturday afternoon. No, I belong as much- on Comedy Central stages. Absolutely. <laughs> My dream is to be a stand-up comedian. No. Ew. No. I will not allow such a thing. I will not allow such a thing. This is why I got to get you on TED Talk stages, Derek, because then if this don't work out, you're going to try to do comedy. And like the world don't need that nonsense, Derek. world don't need that. Yes, it does. Yeah, that's why you're here, Derek. We got to we got to we got to fix this. We got to get you to succeed here. So Lord doesn't have you trying out this comedy business anyway. Let, before we wrap up, just want to remind you all that Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the past 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs, so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows in the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on iTunes or dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Uh, Brother Derek, where can folks find us? You can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com. Also uh, on Facebook and then on Twitter and Instagram at btblds. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't think we got any events coming. Oh, hold up. Isn't there a... Uh, yeah, there's our weekly uh, thing on... Uh, book club. Book club on Blair Ostler's book. Mm-hmm. That happens every Sunday, and that's going to happen uh, every Sunday until we finish the book. And does Affirmation have an event coming up free? Yes, that's... I don't even know when it is. It's later in the year, but there is uh-huh. the uh, the affirmation conference, which will be virtual this year. They're already advertising for it anyway, so it will be virtual and it will be free. It'll be virtual and it'll be free. Yes, affirmation. Yeah, and uh, oh gosh, I can't say that because by the time this airs, the it'll already be too late. I was going to say something about Mally's movie, but I'm going to have to skip that. But uh, anyway, well, you can make a post today. I will make a post today. That's a great idea, Derek. Um, so, yeah, I don't think there's any other events. Uh, also want to just say a quick special thanks to uh, the collaborators who have been helping us out, as well as uh, David Doyle for transcripts, Tamara Kemsley for audio and the various people who have uh, helped us with our social media by compiling their favorite little sound bites for us to share via social media. That's been a big help. That stuff has been stressing me 
the F out. So like, seriously, thank you guys so much who have been like sending those little sound bites and quotes uh, to our email so that we can throw these on our templates real quick. Um, and also we've received your feedback about the templates. We know they're ugly or rather that they all look the same. Um, I'll admit I bought those things on Fiverr. I'm sorry that they look cheap. I will work on getting some more. Um, we'll get, we'll get better looking graphics coming out, but, uh, thank you guys for the feedback and thank you for the, uh, for assembling these, uh, quotes. It has been a load off of my, my shoulders. So again, thank you guys. Is there anybody else we got to acknowledge or any other announcements we got? Mm, I don't no church that, business. No, no business. All right. Then with that, thank you guys for tuning in till we meet again next week. Bye everyone.